Hello and welcome to the podcast where conversation with creative people is alive and well. I am Jordan and this is On Mike with Jordan Rich. The art of insubordination, how to dissent and defy effectively, is the first book of its kind offering a recipe for rebellion that is scientifically based and 100% practical. And thanks to our guest, the author, Todd Cashdan, a lot of fun. Today's guest is a professor of psychology who writes the Curious blog for Psychology Today. And he's the author of five books, including Curious, The Upside of Your Dark Side, and Designing Positive Psychology. But today we're talking about the art of insubordination, how we can improve ourselves and society by by being courageous, by asking questions of the status quo, and doing so in a way that makes sense and doesn't lead others to hating you forever for it. Looking forward to talking with our guest as we welcome Todd Cashdan to join us on mic. First off, Todd, love your sense of humor. You have to have one in the field you're in, right? I wish there was more of it in the field of nerdy scientists. <laughs> nerdy scientists, love it. And by the way, the cover of the book, The Art of Insubordination, is really cool. Would you describe it for our listeners, please? That's a tough, that might be the hardest question I've heard in a while. You're going to think of uh, Pennywise from Stephen King's It, where we have this beautiful <laughs> red balloon carrying... Uh, it's going to sound like I'm in a sensory deprivation tank with a uh, intravenous ketamine talking about this. Yeah, there is a red balloon carrying an origami across a waterfall, and on one side of the waterfall where it came was a, a stormy scene, and there's a bunch of other origami ships that are on the water about to fall off the the edge of the waterfall, <laughs> and this red balloon is carrying one origami across the sunny side on the other side of the waterfall, and. Um, it's a metaphorical representation of um, what principal rebels do in group settings to uh, to offer freedom from constraints and creativity mm. and innovation and the evolution of society. I love the cover. That's why I want to ask you about it. And I studied it. I actually looked at it twice. I said, what the heck's going on here? Uh, <laughs> so thank you for that. The trouble with the word insubordination is that it suggests uh, somebody misbehaving and you set the record straight and explore it in much more detail, don't you? Yeah. I mean, the only time you hear insubordination is someone is uh, a military tribunal, um, kicks somebody out, um, or somebody is fired from the government of uh, an act of insubordination. I mean, this this just happened not too long ago. It was uh, Rebecca Jones was fired um, by the governor of Florida for she refused to falsify COVID data and um, – you had a bunch of government officials go into her house and steal all of her computer equipment, and she was fired. Um, to some degree, insubordination is we, – we are – no matter whether we want to see it this way or not, we are surrounded by social hierarchies. And yeah. there are authority figures. There are orders. There are rules. There are norms. And someone that disobeys the, the chain of command is doing an act of insubordination. And this book is about principled insubordination. It's just that we have inefficiencies, problems, and dysfunctions in our systems, and we have rules and norms that are absurd, if not dangerous. And the way society has always evolved, from the Galileos, the Mandelas, to the Rosa Parks and Susan B. Anthony's, has been singular people that said, you know what? That makes no freaking sense. It's mm. not working. And it's interesting, too. I mean, the mob mentality, uh, the pressures of the mob, that's nothing new. It's been around since men and women appeared on the earth. With the advent of the social media immediate kind of gotcha culture we're in now, it's much more 
challenging, I'll put it that way, Todd, for people to be their own person, to take that rebel stance. We'll talk about the, the ways to do it effectively, but isn't it much more challenging today? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because there's so much conversation about this is the most intolerant time in history. And these are, <laughs> the, the, you know, the origin cancel culture has never been worse. And um, this is the most polarized political climate ever. And as a student of history, you learn really quickly this these uh, hyperbolic statements are very problematic because as we'll get to, one of the greatest uh, interventions for dissent is to, to really be clear about what the social norms are for behaving and communicating. And the problem with the internet, it's not that we're the most intolerant time in history, but it's the quickest speed to which we're able to express intolerance in history and that people latch on and form alliances where you're, you're showing intolerance quickly with with a complete lack of due discipline, sorry, due diligence mm. to actually figure out is that person or is that situation truly worthy of that level of intolerance? Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how this applies to real life every day. Things happen every day to us that we need to speak up about. Talk a little bit about what your book does. I love the recipe sections and all the ways to tweak our ability to, uh, shall we say, stand up for what's right. What applications does the book have, Todd? It's it's really hard to imagine one. There's not the reason is is that at the at the at the larger level, you have we're fighting authoritarian leaders. We are trying to make sure that there's not opportunity hoarding, that regardless of your, your background, how disadvantaged you were, that you have, if you work hard, you're intelligent, you're wise, you've, 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 done, the, you've done the education and training to get there, that you are not blocked access because of what you look like or um, you know, any, you know, any mm. allegiances to people that look, look differently or have a different background, right? The, the idea that the Yales and Harvards and Stanfords, these are the colleges of the Supreme Court justices over the course of history. Mm. I told, I just told my students in class, my undergraduate students at George Mason, none of you will make the Supreme Court and none of you will be president. And I know this might be disheartening, but just look at the small number of colleges of every single person who's been a Supreme Court justice or has been the vice president or the president. We have biases which we can call opportunity hoarding that's happened there. So to speak, that's where we can speak up at the high level, but at the low level, it's simple norms such as why do women take the last name of men when you have unions? Or, you know, you know why is it that we have such an adverse reaction to cannabis and we're so comfortable with alcohol? And yet, if you look at the scientific evidence in terms of the long-term damage to at the neurological level, much less social level, alcohol is so much worse than cannabis that happens there. We have so many of these things. And what I want to set off with this mission of mine that just starts with the book is I want to set people out there to go start carefully dissecting your world for all the dysfunctions and provide, you know, search for the evidence for and against 
why this should be existing and why it shouldn't be changed into a more functional matter. Well, that's what you're doing here. You're, you're suggesting creative, and I'm going to use the word gentlemanly ways to do this. Uh, that could apply to men, but also women. To do this in a way that is effective, because so many people just get ticked off and start spouting opinions about things that they read about on the internet. But you're giving us a, a sort of a character-building exercise in each chapter. That's what I take from your work here, Todd. I like. I think you should. I should hire you for PR. That's, I'm, that's I'm available except for, for Tuesdays and Thursdays when I have uh, a yoga class. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> seriously, talk talk with us a little bit about my favorite quote on character is you know character is doing the right thing when nobody's looking. I'm, exactly. I know you know that one. But but why it's important for you to take on this role as a quote unquote rebel, but do so in and defend yourself as you're doing it with the right moves. Yeah, I mean, let me start with uh, the dissenter's paradox, which is as you disagree with social norms and as you question authority figures and as you raise doubts within the group that you identify with and that you're a part of, you will experience short-term mental anguish and Hmm. possibly scorn and rejection. But in the moderate and longer term, the group benefits from your sacrifice to your own well-being. And this is it's useful to hold this in mind is you have to have, as you said, the fortitude to be able to absorb the friction and the static because you know this is the right way. And one, one psychological strategy that's helpful for people is what Ethan Cross calls self-distancing, is that you can imagine is that you know there is a younger Jordan there's a present Jordan and there's a future Jordan. And when you think about these choice points of do I approach and say something and point out the problems that I see or do I avoid and self-silence and self-censor myself because, you know what, life's going pretty good and people like me, people invite me to parties, people want to be around me, people smile, and I don't want to kind of mess things up. Mm. When you think about future Jordan, you can say like, how are they going to look at you if you decide to take the safe route now? And how are they going to look at you if you choose cowardice over bravery? And most people don't want to be in their 70s and 80s and say, oh, yeah, I bit my tongue a lot. Um, I curried favor with people who had power because I wanted a little bit more power. And I basically like kind of kept my head down and didn't rock the boat for for many years. And I moved up in the company and I got, uh, you know, I became the chief financial officer and I got a really nice parking spot and I got to make six figures. And um, it was a good life. It was a good life of cowardice where I made a lot of money and I got a lot of power. I got a lot of status. Most people don't want that to be their autobiography. And so by thinking about our future self, we can kind of pay, pay it forward to them by risking our short-term quality of life now. And this is how I approach my life. This is how I train my three daughters to think. And it's how I train uh, the students in my classroom. And there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence over 60 years of science of how to do this, that the meaningful life is independent of being happy. And if you're to, you know, if you were to go through the, the historical photographs of of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. being that it's we're talking during Black History Month, you don't see many pictures of them throwing babies in the air or um, laughing hysterically mm. or you know riding a bike up and down a hill. 
th- these were somber characters. And the reason was is that they were on a mission and they lived a life of purpose and they lived a life of sacrifice. And we, 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 we put them on a pedestal because they earned it. They sacrificed right. their lives so that their, our quality of life is better. And would you rather be like them? Or would you rather be, uh, you know, a bunch of people on cruise ships who were uh, gorging excessively and um, just, you know, just taking in, a, you know, as many dips as possible at 11 o'clock at night while the world is burning? Yeah, it's that Faustian bargain that uh, is the subject of so many important moral stories and Twilight Zone episodes and all. It, it really is a question that you can ask yourself at any age, but particularly when you get a little bit older. The book is called The Art of Insubordination, and that's what we're focusing on here, Todd, the idea that there are ways to do it so that you don't come off hurting anybody personally, perhaps. One of the things, though, that I, and you mentioned MLK, and I want to bring him back into this, but one of the things that I love is the fact that you inform us that we're not alone, even when we think we're alone, even when we think we're the only ones. When Abraham Lincoln uh, won the presidency, he had a lot of supporters, albeit an incredibly challenging course to take, Um, but we're not alone. And I wanted to have you tell the story, because I'm a Trekkie, about uh, Nichelle Nichols, uh, Lieutenant Uhura. But let's talk about that idea that we can form community even in our rebellious state. Can I take a, a slight insubordinate pivot and play with the Abraham Lincoln story of something I just learned a couple days ago? Of course. You're, you're, you're free to do so. Um, it's, it's a very interesting fact about this. And Steven Spielberg came close to capturing this in his film about Lincoln, but didn't go far enough, which was in the South, as Lincoln was trying to collect allies for, you know, for the emancipation of, of uh, slavery. Um, he's well known for, and I'm using the language of the times, this is the 1800s, of, mm-hmm. of liking darky jokes, of liking off-color humor, of... Um, of using the N-word kind of regularly in his conversations. And this was part of the, you know, a social norm at that time period. You know, it's, it's, it's dangerous to use the, the norms of today to judge people in, in the past. And part of it was strategic, was the people that he was trying to bring on were people that were incredibly true white supremacists and racists and, you know, lynching black men and women on their free time when they weren't in, when, you know, when they weren't doing their normal work jobs of, uh, you know, just in government and, you know, in the police, the police precincts and just having a country store. The way for Lincoln to relate to those people was to be very audience centric. He knew he had to get those southern votes of those those people that had, you know, that had a hatred of black men and women in their veins. In order for him to do it, he had to engage a little bit of dark stuff, um, dark humor. Um, and use their language and talk to them as they talk. And he did it because he saw the long game. He was able yeah. to see of the only way that you're going to see. So it goes to the question of how do you dissent effectively? The first, the first question the audience asks is, are you one of us? Do you mm. understand us? Because if not, we're not really going to listen to your message and let you elaborate on it. I'm so glad you. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because those who stu- I'm a Lincoln file, and when you study him and and read uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, team of rivals, for instance, you realize he was a master at getting things master. done in a time when it was impossible to get anything done, keep, let alone keep the union together. So let's let's go uh, to the 23rd century for a moment, and yep. you write about this that I'm very familiar with the uh, famous Martin Luther King letter to Nichelle Nichols, who played. Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, for those of you out there, 
uh, in my league. And uh, what was the circumstance and why was that letter so poignant in your estimation? Why did it matter? Yeah. So, um, people, you know, a lot of younger people had never seen an actual original Star Trek episode. Uh, the most famous, famous person in my family was an extra um, for um, Roddenberry's original Star Trek episode. Just sat there in the background, the Enterprise. Red shirt. And was it a red shirt? Red, red shirt. I uh, probably yep. died, but in the f- line of duty. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> and uh, the the first interracial kiss on television. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, it was 1968. You're correct. Might have been 1967. Um, was between uh, Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Ahura. And um, Roddenberry um, was having to make a decision of we have some of the highest ratings of any television show um, mm. in the, on the planet right now. And he knew that he had a southern audience and he had to make a decision of am I willing to risk some ratings and, w- and lose, lose some fans in order to do what I know is socially right to actually kind of have some social progress. And Uhara was um, – experienced a lot of racism by a lot of the staff, uh, staff members, not Roddenberry on that show. And she was considering leaving. And Martin Luther King Jr. wrote her this letter where he said that um, him and his wife and his daughter, um, every single week that they would tune in. Remember, this is this is back before DVRs and it was live and um, was like, you need to stay on that show. Like he basically gave her a command. (laughs) You need to stay on that show because you are representing the future of humanity and there needs to be someone with someone with our color of skin in the future and i need my daughter to see that and her friends need to see that and um you're doing good work and it was just basically he basically you know, the undercurrent of this letter was yeah i'm a civil rights activist and yeah there are people working in government for the cause but you are you are seen by more people than any of us right now, and you are. And this show is, uh, you know, idolized by fans all over the world. That happens yeah, here, yeah. and that letter made her made her, was exactly as you're saying. It was we when we experienced the decision of do I decide to stick with this cause or not and dissent against the mainstream thinking. We look to our left and right, and we see are there. Tr- trustworthy allies that are there. And if so, our brain actually makes a decision to say, I have the mental, physical, and social resources to actually move forward. And your brain actually is able to use less cortical activity, less energy. And so it's less effortful to actually take a stand when they're there. And as you mentioned, you know, Jordan, very perceptively, the, the person doesn't have to physically be there. Martin Luther King's letter, let her know, I'm on your shoulder. And so is my entire family. And so are a lot of other black, you know, black Americans. They're on your shoulder and they're with you every time that you go to battle to decide whether or not to do this show. And every time that you face friction um, before you step onto that stage that goes on there. And with that, she was able to, you know, to be more efficiently fight against the standards, you know, the dominant social order at the time, which was being a black woman puts you pretty low on the totem pole of humanity that happened there. And we have that power now in 2022 to do that for other people. If you have power and status, lend it to people. Like when you when you when you're exposed to a young person or someone of any age who's fighting for a cause, do not underestimate the power of you writing a handwritten letter or a deep 
long email that says in with you know about why you care about them, why you care about their mission, and you're with them even when you're not physically there because you're actually increasing their cortical power yeah. and their physical formidability to go and fight and do battle. It's interesting. You, you talked about the present, past, and future individual and how we see ourselves. But it's interesting how we look at historical figures and through the eyes of history, we now revere those rebels who at the time might have been strung up and, and tortured. You, you write about many of them in the book. And, and these are the people we idolize. So what's a good way for any of us to, to just put things in perspective? I'll ask you that to sort of wrap up here. I think you hit it beautifully. I mean, you've got one word names of the people that are the, you know, the principled icons of history, right? Tubman, Tesla, the real Nikolai Tesla, mm. um, King, you know, Malcolm, Galileo, Copernicus. Um, as soon as you get, as soon as you are successful as a rebel, only then do you get anointed. Only then do you get the accolades. Only then do you get the appreciation. And so if we could have this longer time perspective and realize it might hurt now. And I tell a lot of stories of people who experience a lot of harm um, over the course of their lives for experiencing dissent. But later, you're going to be appreciated. And later, you're going to be respected. And most importantly, you yourself will have, um, you know, the epigram of, of, of your life where it says, this here lies a person that lived a meaningful, purposeful life and was willing to take risks despite the pain, despite the friction, and despite the sacrifices. And I think a yeah. lot of us would love to know that there are people, um, younger generations that looked upon us as, uh, I'm glad you took a stand versus you decide to be one of the silent people who stood as a bystander. And history is is rife with examples of people who stood by and uh, and just cowered. It, it, and sometimes they had to, to save their lives and the lives of their families, but at other times they, they could have spoken up. Uh, the famous reverend from, uh, from Germany who said about them coming for the gypsies, them coming for the Jews, them coming for me, and there was nobody to speak up for me, uh, paraphrasing you. You're nodding, and you know exactly what I'm referring to. Um, I think the book is terrific uh, from the cover on in. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about what you're doing besides writing this book and teaching it. Do you have, have individual counsel as well for people? Well, I do a lot of consulting for organizations. I mean, I mean I'm really trying to let people know is that um, our approach to diversity in these organizations is always going to fail unless you realize – you have to bring people in, but you have to extract their knowledge and wisdom. And you have to, if you don't have minority descent from the group, it doesn't matter how much diversity you bring into the room. If you're not allowing oh. those views, you, you need the pool of dissenting views to be in there in the first place in order for that diversity to actually activate and take hold and actually alter the cultures. And life is a hell of a lot more interesting when you get somebody who says, um, excuse me, I have a question. Uh, can we take a look at it this way? I mean, <laughs> lemmings are not uh, exciting people to be around, you know. Uh, not that you have to be pissed off and, and just derisive, uh, device, uh, derisive yeah, on every point, but every once in a while it's good to rustle a few feathers and do it effectively. Yeah, and, and just, Jordan, the, the inflection you have when you said that, from a place of curiosity, not to be obstructionist. Right. It's really important to get those verbals and nonverbals right when words are emitted from your mouth. Todd 
Kashtan, K-A-S-H-D-A-N, Ph.D., The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. And one more note, I said it at the beginning, you've got a very uh, keen wit, and it makes reading a book like this a lot more fun. So well done. I appreciate that big time, Jordan. Great to be here. Todd Kashdan. That's his website, T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H-D-A-N.com. Author of a slew of entertaining and important books, the latest, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Well done. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry at Chart Productions, where we produce this and many other podcasts and voiceovers. Find out more about me, my book, my speaking engagements, and my VO work at jordanrich.com. And always a special thanks to you, the audience, growing in numbers by the day. Appreciate it very much. Till next time, this is JR saying be well so you can do good. Take care.